Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I am your host, uh, Stephen Pinecker. And so we're doing another Tuesday special episode, and I have Jonathan Neville back. He's part of the rotation of uh, different guests that I like to talk to periodically. And so we're going to have a little special episode uh, about a particular object that he has and his view on it. Before we get there, I just want to say I'm 50 subscribers away at this moment from the channel being monetized. Only about 10% of YouTubers get the opportunity to be monetized. So if you've been watching and you're not a subscriber, please, I'm asking, please subscribe because we're really close. And I also want to thank all my Patreons and financial supporters for everything you've done for me. Um, the channel's really taken off and it's not going to be small for much longer. And so I want to enjoy this period of time. And one of the people who was an early adopter, if you will, or a supporter of this channel was Jonathan Neville. And I just want to thank you for coming back onto the program. Well, thanks for having me, Stephen. I, I have to say, I'm, I really appreciate everything you're doing on this channel because you're talking to everybody. And you're, you know, my, one of my themes is multiple working hypotheses, right? And so I really like the idea of having a variety of voices, being able to just say what they think about these different topics. And, and you're such a great interviewer anyway, that it makes it easy for people to come on and just talk about what they think and what they've found and so on. So kudos to you, man. Well, thanks. I appreciate it, Jonathan. And uh, it's all about relationships and making friendships and and just building bridges and dialoguing with each other. So yep. I wanted to, so this is kind of like, we're doing kind of like what we did with Brent Ashworth, where he brings on items now. In this case, I kind of know what's coming up ahead of time because Jonathan and I have discussed a few things, but I think it's a fascinating thing. And we previewed it last time he was on, and that yeah. was the Kinderhook plates. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the Kinderhook plates, Jonathan. Okay. Well, it was some time ago that we, you were asking me about any artifacts I had, and I had quite a few, but one of them that intrigued you the most was my replicas of the Kinderhook place, if you can see these. Mm -hmm. There's six of them, and these are to scale. They're around three inches long and about an inch or so at the top and a couple inches at the bottom. And these have been controversial in church history, both among apologi apologists and critics, right? So I thought we'd discuss these today. And you, you can ask any questions you want. I have a narrative I can provide and we'll just go from there. Okay. Well, before we actually kind of get into the history of the Kinderhook plates, do you mind telling me like how you acquired those replicas? Where did you get them? Well, I actually, I got them from a collection. There was a guy who had a collection of LDS artifacts and he was selling them. And I thought, well, I, I kind of like these. And so I just bought them from him. And they're, they're based on the, the um, Times and Seasons had uh, published some replicas of it in, in the journal. And that's what these are all based on, all the inscriptions. We'll, we'll look at some of the inscriptions in a few minutes, but that's what these are all based on. So. so did he personally make them or did he commission somebody to make those? I believe he commissioned someone to make them. I don't wow. know how many were ever made, actually. That's a good question. I didn't ask. Oh, so they could be out. kind of one of a kind. Is, is that possible? That... Possibly. It's possible. Hmm. They're, they're made out of some kind of a brass and they have these little inscriptions on it. So they're, they're fairly authentic, although they haven't been washed with acid or etched with acid, depending on which version of this story you take. Mm -hmm. But they have the same inscriptions as, as we'll see here. Okay. So uh, one of the things is, you know, up until about 1980, um, the church was basically advocating that the Kinderhook plates were uh, 
genuine, that they were a, of an ancient background. It was, like you said, times and seasons. And so essentially what they did was, um, we know what they all looked like because they gave some pretty accurate descriptions of each one of the bell-shaped uh, things. And right. what makes it interesting is the reason why we know it's probably pretty accurate is because we found there was one that they found, I think was at the uh, yeah. Chicago History Museum or something that there right. was one. So they were able to identify one that was in the times of seasons and match that up. And it was pretty, most people would agree it's pretty accurately done. Is that correct? Yeah, in, in fact, uh, Brigham Young in his journal traced one. Huh. He was at Joseph Smith's house, he had one. And right in his journal, you can see he outlined it. So we know the exact size. And then I think it was William Clayton, one of the others uh, also did the same in his journal. But it's right in Brigham Young's journal. It's pretty interesting to see. Huh. So why don't you just tell a little bit about the story about sure. the, the, them? Yeah, as, as I recall, it's in 1843. And these guys down in Kinderhook, Illinois, which is south along the, the Mississippi River, or Sidon River, depending on how you want to call it, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they they dug up a, a nine foot tall mound and inside there is uh, you know the typical skeleton underneath the stone and below it were these or with the skeleton were these and one account was that they were laying on his chest like this and another maybe that they were kind of around his neck kind of like this which was a was a thing anciently apparently and so they dug it up and they took it up to Quincy, which is a city between Kinderhook and Nauvoo. By the way, I've been to Kinderhook. The, the mound is no longer there, of course, but I was driving along the Mississippi and I had to stop and take a picture of Kinderhook. Hmm. And so the, in Quincy, the Quincy newspaper published an article about these plates that had been found. And so someone had taken, uh, had notice of it in Nauvoo. I, I don't need to go through the history of who all did it, but eventually they made it to Joseph Smith. Someone took it up to Joseph Smith for him to look at. And uh, he had them for a few days on two different occasions. This is in 1843. And there were a couple of journal accounts that alluded to the idea that Joseph Smith had translated the plates or translated a portion of them. That's what it said. Mm -hmm. One was, uh, I can't remember all the names exactly, but I think William Clayton was one. And uh, of course, probably P. Pratt wrote a letter referring to it, that it was, um, it talked about one of the Jaredites who was a descendant of Ham through Egypt. But they were very brief um, comments really about just saying Joseph Smith had translated a portion. They talked about descendant of Ham through Egypt. That's really about all that, that they said. And it was, um, I think it was William Clayton whose, whose journal talked about it. And later in the history of the church, William Clayton would, would write uh, Joseph Smith's journal. And he would say, you know, Joseph did this, Joseph did that. But it, when they compiled the history of the church, the editors converted those to first person accounts. So instead of William Clayton's third person observations, they became Joseph Smith's personal accounts. So where William Clayton wrote, uh, President Joseph has translated a portion of them in the history of the church, it became, I translated them in Joseph Smith's name. So that led to, uh, you know, for maybe a hundred years or so, everybody believing that Joseph Smith actually translated these kinderhood plates. 
But what happened in, in the late 1800s, I think it was around 1870 something, one of the guys who dug up these plates originally claimed that they were a forgery, that he had manufactured them. And he had, he had secretly gone to this, um, the big mound and buried them so that they would be found the next day. And that caused, of course, the, the anti-Mormon critics said, well, Joseph Smith was caught translating a fraud. And that, so that was the basic controversy that in the church history, it said Joseph translated them. The critics said they were fake. And then, do you have another question or should I just continue? Oh, just keep going. That's interesting. <laughs> okay. Well, so then, I, I, and I don't remember the exact date, I think it was in the 1980s that uh, Edward Kimball at BYU did a, a more in-depth analysis of it. Oh, I should back up. The, the guys who dug it up originally said that they were um, kind of uh, corroded and they couldn't read them. And so they washed them with acid to clear off the corrosion. And then they could see that there's characters on here. If you can, I don't know if you can see in the light there. Yeah. See those characters? Yeah. So they discovered there were characters on there. And that's what led them to go to, um, eventually made their way to Joseph Smith. Well, Edward Kimball did an analysis. They took a, there was one plate found. All the plates were lost, but as you mentioned, that one plate had been discovered. And they knew it was the same one because there was the same etching and there was a nick on one of the corners. And so they did a, a metallurgical analysis and determined that it was a, an alloy that uh, was common in the 1800s. And so therefore they assumed it, it really was. And, and they, they looked at the engravings and, and the guy, um, Sorry, I'm not using their names, but people who don't care what their names are, they can look it up in Wikipedia. But the guy who claimed it was a fraud said that they etched it with acid, wax and acid. And according to this metallurgical analysis, it was etched with acid, these things. But at the same time, the original story was that they washed it with acid. So if they had washed it with acid, it could have caused the same kind of an indication on the marks as being etched by acid. So there's a little bit of ambivalence. At, at this point, some people think that they could be still authentic because of the original account that they were buried underneath this mound and under a big stone, it would be difficult for someone to go in there and, and hide them. Also because uh, they said that they were, um, uh, the original people who found it said that they had been corroded, which wouldn't have happened if they had just made them in a blacksmith shop and that they clean, wash them with acid. Now those guys might've all been lying, but there are seven or eight of them that signed a, a statement to that effect. And it wasn't until I think it was about 40 years later that, that the one guy said, no, we made those ourselves. And he said they made them in a blacksmith shop, but blacksmiths don't deal with this kind of metal. So, you know, anyway. The other, another uh, point is that at the time along the Mississippi River, there was a real shortage of brass. So the idea that these guys would take this much brass to make some fake for who knows what purpose is a little questionable. At so this you, point, I, you know, there's no way to tell one way. So, or so you're saying like, okay, so that, so this is like, you're saying that, that this was a common metal that there would have been around 19th century, but is there an argument that could be made that those metals could have also been an ancient? Uh, yeah, sure. Ancient? Yeah, yeah, because, okay, now let me back up. So Joseph Smith said it was a Jaredite. Okay. And the Jaredites, according to the Book of Mormon, were using metals. 
And so theoretically, if you accept what the Book of Mormon says, they had metals and they were doing metallurgy. And I talked about the differences that were available. And there's, that's, that's getting into the weeds a little bit. The bottom line is it's plausible that they were ancient metal as well as 18th or 19th century metal. Either one, it's, it's almost you can pick. Now, most people are going to, I think, side with the um, Edward Kimball approach that these were proven to be fake. All I'm saying is that there's reasonable grounds to believe the original story as well. That actually makes more sense because of the way they were discovered. And that the, the later account that they were faked was a retroactive uh, way to discredit Joseph Smith. Okay. So I, I, I mean, I don't have an opinion one way or the other because I don't think it matters. And I'll explain why in a minute. Now, the, the um, by the way, I should say, since you like books, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> this, this book here has a, a, a long account of the Kinderhook Plates. And I'll show you a few pictures out of it. But it has uh, what I think is a single best analysis of the whole Kinderhook Plate story, except that they just assumed that they were forgeries. They didn't get into the metallurgical analysis or the countervening um, or the, the contrary position that they could have been ancient. They just assumed that they were modern forgeries and went from there. So with that exception, this is the best overall account that the Kinderhood plays. I'm gonna give you some links you can post in the notes to three or four articles. Actually, the Wikipedia page on this is really good, but it's, it's cursory. And then there's uh, Edward Kimball's article, which people should read. And then I have an, another one or two that you can look at to get some ideas. So I remember watching um, when it was free on Amazon for a while, they had the series Hidden in the Heartland. Right. And they actually had, I guess, what was actually a D, uh, on the DVD set was kind of like an appendix or just a, an add-on that I happened to watch, which was they were kind of implying in the series, I don't know if you watched or not, but I know you're a lot of people that you're associated with were involved in the producing of it. But they seemed to imply that there was a possibility that they could have been authentic. And that yeah. was the first time I ever heard such a thing. So yeah. maybe describe to me, an art, and I'm not saying that this is your view, but maybe just yeah. tell me what would be the, like, the best argument in favor of them being authentically ancient. Okay, well, that, that's a good question. That's what I was alluding to with the idea that when they were first discovered, they were all corroded. Mm -hmm. They couldn't read them. They were encrusted, basically. And so they got this acid. And I don't remember if it was sulfuric or another kind of acid, but it's the kind of acid that they use when in masonry when they're making cement and stuff. So that would have been easily available. So that part of their story checks out. Okay. And then for them to have to use acid to remove all of the, um, the corrosion on here is an indication that they were ancient, right? Okay. Because if they were made in a blacksmith's shop and put in this mound the night before these guys showed up, they wouldn't have been corroded like that. Okay. So the original story does sound authentic. Okay. And, it, and none of those people recanted except the one guy 40 years later who said, well, we made them and they were fakes. Yeah, and if if it was all a setup, why did yeah. it wait forty years to? Yeah, they the could have done it as soon as the times and seasons. And I think it was in May of eighteen forty-three. Joseph it said that Joseph had translated some of them. 
they should have said right then that it was fake. Yeah. And all everybody involved could have come out with the same story, but they didn't. Yeah. It wasn't until, for, and as I recall, several of the people originally involved with it had died by the time this guy said they were fake. So, okay. So it's just one of those anomalies in, in history. Now, the other thing about it that is uh, kind of, a, I don't know if it's an indication of antiquity or not, but the question is how would they have come up with all these characters on here? You can mm -hmm. see some of the characters. Yeah. Now they're, they're fanciful, but in a minute, I'm going to show you why they're not all fanciful. Okay. But, you know, they, they had something to go by. And, and let me give you an experience of mine that relates to this. I was in Lebanon some years ago doing an archaeological thing as a, on a filming project, doing some uh, filming of Biblos and some of the other sites. And I was with an, a Lebanese archaeologist. And we were at one site and this guy came up to us and had a whole bunch of coins. He said they were Roman coins. <laughs> she said, these guys always sell fakes. But she picked through them and she said, this one's fake, fake, fake. Oh, this one looks real. You know, she kind of sorted through them that way. And so I have about a half dozen of those. And I have one that's clearly a fake because I, I kind of broke it to see and it was made out of an alloy of some sort. But the others I've looked up in, you know, in uh, reference books and they look authentic. And so in order for them to create fakes, they had to have an authentic to be based on, right? And so when I look at this, I think, well, who knows what, how they could have come up with these kind of characters if they were all these farmers in, in Kinderhook trying to come up with fake plates. Why would they have six? You know, it's a lot of work to go to to just create a little uh, thing. In fact, you asked if I, who made these, and I don't even know who made them, but the amount of work that it took into just to make these replicas is significant. So the idea that these farmers in Kinderhook just went out to a shop and cut these and engraved them with acid etching, I mean, that's not an easy process if they're even able to do it. And then hide them. It, that the, the fake story makes less sense than the original story, just from a narrative standpoint. It's not to say one's true and one's false. I'm just saying when you look at it from a plausibility, the original story makes a lot more sense. Well, but this is fascinating to me because in one sense, yeah. if they're authentic and they're Jaredite in origin, you could very well be looking at the Adamic language written down. Is that correct? Well, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, but I mean, that's that that's a possibility. But I don't know if uh, the Jaredites were really speaking the Adamic language. That's okay. a whole other topic. <laughs> okay. Um, so but, well, let me mention two other things related to this, though. Well, go ahead if you had a question. Well, I just want to know where would they have gotten the brass if it was Jaredites? Where would they have gotten the brass to make those? Well, it's an alloy. It's mm -hmm. it's what is it? Tin and copper, I think. Yeah. So could they have been going up? Do you think that it was the Jaredites that were mining up in the Upper Peninsula? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The Jaredites are some, or their contemporaries, put it that way. Mm -hmm. There were people living at the Jaredite times that were mining copper up in Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Whether they were named Jaredites or not is still to be determined. Okay. But the Book of Mormon describes them as working in metals, right? And tin, I, I don't know that much about where you find tin, but apparently it's fairly abundant. So there's, there's no question they could have been combining copper and tin to make some kind of a brass. Now, I've, I've also talked to an expert in this. He says there's different um, percentages of the metals you can combine to get different types of alloys of different colors and so on. And so 
but again, we're only we're not going to cover this for an hour. So <laughs> all I'm trying to say is it's, it's fascinating to me that the narrative, the original narrative of these guys is more plausible than the later narrative. And the testing, as far as I know, they never tested any ancient metals to see if they were the same. They just said, well, these are like what was done in the 1800s. So now related to that, though, I was going to mention two things. One is that um, Joseph Smith had, had identified an Adena mound near Nauvoo as a Jaredite mound. And he identified uh, Hopewell Mound, the one at uh, Zelf's Mound, as a Nephite Mound. So he had already made a distinction between those two civilizations. And this was decades before archaeologists distinguished between those two. And so in his mind, Jaredites were living along the Mississippi River, right, right outside of Nauvoo. So it would make sense for him to assume that these were Jaredite. Now, here, let me get into the translation issue here. Because the, uh, the idea was that Joseph translated a portion of them, right? That's, that's the only record we have. And after May of 1843, no one really talked about them anymore, which kind of suggests that Joseph maybe translated a portion of them and then decided it was either wasn't worth translating the rest, didn't have time, or maybe he decided they weren't real. And this is real interesting because it boils down to, let me see if I can find the right one. One of these has a little boat image on it. I think it was this one. I don't know if you'll be able to see it, but I'll put it up to the camera. At the very top there, see that little boat? Mm -hmm. Kind of right? Yeah. Right there. Okay. We'll yeah. So the one of the journals, I think it was William Clayton's journal, says that Joseph asked either him or someone to go get the Egyptian and uh, Hebrew grammar book that he had. And these guys in this book point out, if I can find it, that in that Egyptian grammar book was a symbol similar to that boat. So it's right, right here, you can see that. Okay, yeah. So this shows the one from the grammar book compared to the one on the Kinderhook plate. Hmm. And it was, it was kind of the most prominent um, at the plates right at the top. So if Joseph had these plates, he looks at it. He says, go get that Egyptian grammar book. They bring it over. He looks at that first one and he says, you know, that looks like this symbol here, right here, mm -hmm. which in the Egyptian grammar said um, it was uh, meant honor by birth, kingly power, words to that effect. And so the people who said Joseph translated this said he was talking about a descendant of Ham, so it had to do with honor by birth, possession by birth, king of Egypt. So his purported translation is kind of related to the Egyptian symbol that was in his grammar book that relates to the, the character on here. And that's the only thing we know that he translated or hmm. purported to have translated. Wow. So, yeah, so it's kind of cool when you, when you really get into the details of this, and this, I think this, this would be their conclusion as well here, which I, I agree with. I think that whether they were authentic or not, at this point, we don't have the rest of them, so we can't assess it. Some people say, well, these characters are just random. It's no known language, but it wouldn't be a known language. So that doesn't really say anything. But when you look at this first character and it matches the one Joseph had in his book, 
and his translation or his purported translation was roughly what it was in Egyptian grammar, that makes sense. So I can see him looking at this and saying, this means this. And then, so that means he translated a portion of it. That, that makes the most sense to me, knowing the, 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 all the historical sources and how they work out. So in a way, it's, it's, it's an alternate working hypothesis, right? <laughs> because, yeah, the people who said Joseph translated a portion accurately reported what Joseph said. He, didn't, he never claimed any revelation to translate it. And if I was looking at this character and looking at that Egyptian grammar book, I might make a similar translation, particularly where Joseph is thinking the Jaredites were living along the Mississippi River, see? But he never translated the rest of it. So even if it, whether it's a hoax or authentic, that character still provides a rationale for Joseph to translate it. You know, when you stop and think about it, you know, so often people are very critical of Joseph Smith because they're always putting him in the role of a prophet. Right. And that he can never be wrong about things and they forget that he was also a translator yeah and he was also an inquisitive person who was thinking i think he's a man who thinks out loud a lot right yeah yeah right. and so i think that's kind of what we're capturing here is joseph smith making an observation i think he was, had a brilliant mind i think he was a genius mm -hmm. so i think he had the recollection to be able to say wait a second and then compare him and so again this is not anything that kind of takes away from whether you believe he's a prophet or not, this is not necessarily an argument that shows he's not a prophet, correct? Right. Yeah, exactly. Because whether this is a forgery or an authentic plate right there, that character, you could still translate it. So whether it's a forgery or not really has nothing to do with it. He said it, it described the person it was buried with, which is what that Egyptian symbol does. So the forgers, if they were forgers, somehow came up with an Egyptian symbol that described the character that the skeleton. So either way, you know, I, the way I look at it is it was not scripture. It was not um, doctrine or anything, but it was also not a claimed uh, revelatory translation. It, it's a translation that you and I would make if we had that same grammar book he had and we saw this play, yeah. basically with the addition of it being a Jaredite because he had he learned that separately. Okay. Well, this is really fascinating stuff. And this is one yeah. of the reasons I like having Jonathan on is that you are an original thinker. Um, you're not afraid to go there um, and see where the facts lead you. And that's why I love having you as a guest. Is there anything that you want to add on to this, the, the Kinderhook thing um, before we let you go today? Well, there's one interesting related thing. It's, it's tangential a little bit. Okay. But that is that... Um, this idea of burying plates and they have to be preserved. The ones in Kinderhook were just buried under, they were underneath some of semi-authentic, corroded. And the, the plates that Joseph found in Hill Camora were not corroded, right? And, and what's really interesting about that is, although they apparently they had a little green tinge on them where this, the copper had been um, corroded a little bit, but they have been kept from moisture. And, and I, I know someone who's done a really in-depth analysis of Oliver Cowdery's description of the stone box. And he said that Oliver's description makes it clear that whoever built that box knew how to keep the plates dry and for, for over a thousand years. 
because it had to be solid on all sides so tree roots didn't break it and so on. And it had to have be able to shed the water from this rounded stone on top and all those things. And then he pointed out that when they buried the Book of Mormon manuscript in Nauvoo mm -hmm. in the house, they didn't know how to keep things waterproof. And so it got all destroyed. So that tells me that when Joseph and Oliver described that stone box, they weren't describing anything that they had built themselves or that they even understood. Because if they understood it, they could have built the place for the uh, manuscript in Nauvoo much better, right? So that's an, an a fascinating just little detail of, of history that adds credibility and authenticity to what Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery described. They were describing something they didn't even understand themselves. And yet when they went to Nauvoo, when, when Joseph went to Nauvoo anyway, whoever built that, the box for the manuscript didn't know how to keep it dry. So there, there's interesting details like that yeah. that we could analyze, analyze another time. But yeah. anyway, yeah, that, that's the story too. of these old plates. That's cool. And I've taken them to firesides. I, I don't really talk about the Kinderhood place, but I've had them there to show people if they ask about it. Because I, I think it's a nice resolution of this whole issue. It, it accommodates all the historical accounts. It accommodates the physical evidence. And it, it makes sense in a, in a narrative standpoint. Wow. Well, very interesting. Love it. Love it, man. Okay. So. We'll put the words? links in the show notes. Yeah, put links in the show notes. I want to thank you again for coming on. I just want to remind my subscribers, uh, everybody that's watching, like and subscribe. Don't forget to hit the notification button for when a new episode comes out. I want to thank all my Patreons. We are in the process of getting everything loaded onto our uh, Apple, Google, and uh, Spotify podcasts, and we're expanding as well. Um, I just want to thanks again, Jonathan, for coming on. I really appreciate everything you do, and uh, I'm looking forward to our next session. Sounds great. Talk to you then. All right, folks. You have yourself a great day.